Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. I ask you to remember all of our uh, teens who are uh, gone today at the uh, retreat, the, the youth, uh, youth uh, camp out for the junior and senior high, that God's protection over them, God's blessing on them. And before we start, I want us to uh, lift up in prayer uh, for all of us, uh, Jerry Henderson, who has uh, been taken in the last day to the hospital, uh, and, and we need to pray for his health, for his healing. Uh, Jerry Mesquita, I am sorry. Okay? You didn't tell me the last name. <laughs> My bad. Jerry Mesquita, who's been taken to the hospital, uh, and we uh, pray for his health, pray for his heart health, his kidney health. Uh, so, we, Lord, we lift him up to you now. We lift up our brother Jerry Mesquita to you, Lord. We love him. We thank you for him, Lord. We thank you for, for uh, his passion for you, uh, his heart of servanthood. Uh, we come together as, as, as his family, as his spiritual family, Lord. Uh, and, and we intercede on his behalf. We lift him before your throne. And we pray your Lord, your perfect healing, uh, because you are Adonai Rafecha, the Lord who, who heals us, uh, Lord. Uh, and we thank you, Lord, that we have in you not only salvation of our souls, but also healing of our bodies, because you tell us in your word, in Isaiah, that by your stripes we are healed. And so we lift up Jerry to you to, to heal him, to strengthen his heart, to give him perfect health, uh, to bring him back to us, Lord, uh, in, in, in fullness uh, and in complete recovery. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. All right, again, well, Shabbat Shalom. I want to talk today, um, kind of a, a different topic today, uh, about secular uh, skeptical objections to the Bible. Uh, and the, the issue is this, isn't the Bible historically unreliable? Isn't the Bible even worse? Isn't it socially regressive? Uh, I want to talk about, also about, what or who the Bible is ultimately all about. Uh, and to get at all of this, I want us to look at two excerpts from, from the Gospel of Luke, from the very beginning and the very end of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which, of course, as you know, is an account of Yeshua's, uh, Jesus' life, written by Luke. Who was Luke? Luke was a first-century uh, physician and historian. Uh, and so the, his Gospel starts out like this. We'll put it on the overhead, uh, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, and, and he writes... Many have taken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were what? Were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And then at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, he ends like this in Luke 24, uh, 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Yerushalayim. They were talking to each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Yeshua, Jesus, himself came up and walked among them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, Cleopas, asked him, 
Are you only a visitor to Yerushalayim, to Jerusalem, and don't know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Yeshua of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one who's going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's now the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things, and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Yeshua continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us? as he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. Now, what is it today that troubles most people about the gospel, about Christianity, about Messianic Judaism? Ultimately, it comes down to the Bible. Many secular people today say there are many good things in the Bible, but you should not take every word of it literally. You should, not, you should not expect people to believe and follow everything in it because there are some, you know, some, some, some good things in the Bible, but there are also some things in there that are just wrong. Some things that are right, some things that are wrong. Some things in the Bible are good, uh, some things are bad. Some things are historically unreliable. They're just legends. Uh, we don't really know what happened. And parts of the Bible, they're culturally regressive. Uh, They promote certain antiquated views that we can no longer subscribe to. So for these reasons, they say, the Bible's not entirely trustworthy or authoritative in everything it says. That's a pretty powerful and standard objection you'll hear today from secular, non-religious people. So what do we say to that? How would you respond if you were confronted with these powerful objections. Well, I want to present today uh, why you can and should trust the scriptures in three ways. Put this on the overhead, please. In three ways. Uh, Number one, historically. Number two, culturally. And number three, personally. I want to show you why you should trust the Bible historically, culturally, and most of all, personally. First, historically. Can we trust the scriptures historically? 
Many people uh, claim the Bible in general and the, and the New Covenant scriptures, the Gospel accounts in particular of Yeshua's life, uh, they were concocted by the political winners. Uh, who knows what the original Yeshua was really like? But the idea is that he, he, that he, all these ideas that he claimed to be divine, that he did miracles, that he died on the cross, that he rose on the third day, all these accounts, well, they were written much later uh, by the messianic leaders who were trying to consolidate their power uh, and build their movement. But we don't know what really happened. Uh, they must have suppressed the evidence of the original Yeshua, who was just a human teacher. That's the claim. What do you say to that? Well, I have to say that's not fair and it's not right. It's not historically accurate. There are lots of reasons to refute and debunk this claim that the Gospels are not historically reliable or accurate, that they're just legends. And in the interest of time, I'm just going to mention three of them, three reasons why, three, argue, three counter-arguments. And these are important to know for two reasons. It's important to know, number one, if you want to explore Yeshua's claims uh, and be honest in your search. And number two, if you're already a Yeshua follower, they're important to know so that you can rationally defend your faith. So here are three counter-arguments, three reasons why the Gospels are accurate, uh, why you can trust what the Bible says about Yeshua as being historically reliable. First, number one. The New Covenant, New Testament accounts of Yeshua, they're written much too early to ever have been legends. Legends take hundreds and hundreds of years to slowly develop. But the New Testament accounts of Yeshua's life were written within just a couple decades uh, of his life and death, uh, which is, from a historical perspective, considered very, very early for, for writing history. Uh, they were all written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. So, for example... At the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, which we just read, he says, I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and I've checked with all the eyewitnesses. Luke was written about 30 years after uh, the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And he's saying lots of people who actually saw Yeshua, including seeing his post-resurrection appearances, and heard him teach, these people are still alive. You can go check with them what I'm writing. Check it out. Uh, Rabbi Saul, also known as Paul, he wrote his accounts of Yeshua even earlier than Luke, uh, within 15 years of Yeshua's death. And, and Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. And again, we'll put it on the overhead, please. He writes, For, I, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. The Messiah died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. That he was buried, he was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. And they appeared... He appeared to Peter, and then to the Twelve, and after that, he appeared to more than 500 people all at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So Paul's writing here, within 15 years of Yeshua's life, that 500 people saw him at the same time after his resurrection. And by the way, you don't have hallucinations in groups. <laughs> and he says most of these 500 people, they're still alive, meaning you should go talk to them. Now, Paul could not have possibly written this in a public document, written this publicly, that 500 people saw the risen Yeshua alive at the same time, most of whom are still alive, unless it was really true. Or else it would have been easy to refute him, and he would have lost all credibility. 
Look also at Paul's letter to the Philippians, uh, Philippians 2, where Paul, now remember, Paul's an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. Uh, he, goes, he quotes at length in Philippians 2 this hymn to Yeshua's deity, to his divinity. Now, if Philippians was written only 15 years after the time of Yeshua, and he's quoting a hymn to Yeshua that had been written even by somebody else even earlier, and by that time widely circulated, and by the time Paul wrote this letter, what does that tell us? It tells us that Yeshua's claim to be divine, uh, and the Messianic Jews worshiping him as God, began right after his death and resurrection. In, in the accounts of his life, his miracles, his death on the cross, his resurrection, they were all circulating immediately after his lifetime. So there's no time for legends to develop. On the contrary, we have the exact opposite of legends. We have eyewitness accounts and testimony. The Messianic believers, these Orthodox Jews living in Israel, were worshiping Yeshua as deity right from the very beginning. This wasn't some later developed doctrine, as many of the critics claim. Remember the, the Da Vinci Code, right, by Dan Brown, the folk book in the, in the movie? The book depicts the Emperor Constantine in around the year 325 CE as decreeing Yeshua's divinity and suppressing all evidence of his life as a mere human teacher. But the documents of the New Testament are directly contrary to this claim. They unequivocally assert Yeshua's deity from the very beginning, written within 15 to 20 years of his death, around the year 45 to 50 CE, given that he died around the year 30. This is almost 300 years before Constantine. So the Da Vinci Code is great fiction, but it's lousy history. In fact, one historian uh, reading the Da Vinci Code says this. We'll put this on the overhead, please. He says this. Dan Brown says that when the Emperor Constantine declared Jesus divine, Christianity won the religious competition uh, in the Roman Empire by the exercise of power rather than by any attraction it asserted, exerted. But in actual historical fact, the Messianic believers had won that competition long before that time, for before it had any power, when it was still under persecution. The New Covenant, the New Testament documents essentially show that what Yeshua said uh, and his crucifixion, his resurrection, his claims to be deity, these things really happened. You could maybe write documents 200, 300 years later uh, and make up stories when all the eyewitnesses were dead. And you can say anything you want to say. But you can't say that Yeshua was crucified and resurrected when thousands of people who were still alive, who had seen the facts, it could, you couldn't say that and get away with it unless it actually happened. If Yeshua had not been crucified, if there had not been all these post-resurrection appearances after his death, if there had not really been an empty tomb, if Yeshua had not really made these claims and done these miracles, uh, and these public documents went around claiming all these things, then Messianic Judaism, then Yeshua faith, would never have gotten off the ground and spread all over the world. The New Testament documents are written far too early to be legends. That's number one. Number two, these documents are far too, I'm going to call, counterproductive in their content, who have been legends or been made up. Too counterproductive. Why? Well, the critics claim that, um, is that the Bible does not give you what actually happened. Instead, what you have here is what the Messianic leaders wanted you to believe, 
because this is the view of Yeshua that helps them. It helps them consolidate their power, build up their movement. Really. If I'm a Messianic leader, let's say, one or two generations after Yeshua, and I'm allegedly concocting these stories, would I have really put in there, in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before the crucifixion, that Yeshua asks his father, can I get out of this? If I was making this up, well, I have Yeshua himself saying, Father, can I get out of this salvation thing? So what does Yeshua say, right? In Matthew 26, 39, he says, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Second, if I was making this up, well, I have Yeshua cry out on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's perfectly good and insightful explanations and reasons for these passages. In fact, he's quoting Psalm 22 here. But nonetheless, on first blush, they're confusing and they're even offensive to people. Or if I was making this up, well, I put in what we see here in Luke 24, 24, where they says, Then some of our companions went to the tomb, just as the women had said. We see that all the original eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and the resurrection all the people that first saw Yeshua risen were women. Now, this was at a time, in a place, and in a culture where in both Roman and Jewish courts, the testimony of women was not admissible because they were considered unreliable witnesses. But all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all say that the original eyewitnesses to the resurrection were women. If they were making this up, they would never have put that in there. You just, they, would, they would just be hurting their own case. So the only reason it's there is because that's what really happened. And the gospel writers are simply faithfully reporting the evidence, the facts. Moreover, if you read carefully the gospels, uh, on many occasions the apostles look like fools. Right? They look like jerks. <laughs> they look like slow of heart. They look like cowards. They look terrible. Again, if you're making this up, why would you pit your leaders and your founders of your movement so negatively? Well, the point is you wouldn't. Not in a million years. Therefore, the only possible explanation of these, of these counterproductive items being in the text is if they really happened that way. And the writers of the Gospels are simply faithfully recording the history, uh, warts and all. Because these passages don't help in any other way. They're inexplicable otherwise. They're totally counterproductive if you're trying to spin things uh, to advance your own power. So, we'll put this on the overhead. The New Testament documents, they're one, they're too early to be legends. Number two, they're too counterproductive. And number three, I'm going to call this, they're too detailed in their form. One of our problems today in reading the Gospels and thinking maybe they're just legends is that we don't know much about ancient fiction uh, and ancient legends. Modern fiction, since the 18th century, in the West, developed a new genre called the novel and the short story, in which you have realistic fiction. Realistic fiction is written almost like history. It's very detailed. But in the ancient times, legends were not written like that. Epics and myths, they were not written like that. Go read Beowulf. Go read the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Aeneid. Go read Roman and Greek myths. They don't start out like this. Look at Luke 1, verse 2. I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning and checked with all the eyewitnesses and decided to write an orderly account for you. 
They don't talk, legends don't read like that. C.S. Lewis was an Oxford professor and an expert in ancient literature. And, and, looking, and, and looking at the Gospels, he says this. We'll put this on the overhead, please. He, he, say, he writes this. He says, I've been reading poems and romances and vision literature and legends all my life. I know what they're like. And I know that none of them are like the Gospels. Therefore, there's only two possible views of the Gospels. Either this is historical reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without, without predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated by 1,700 years the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. The reader who doesn't see this simply has not learned how to read. Here's the point. The Gospels don't have the form of legends. They're written too early to be legends. They're too counterproductive to be legends. They're not legends. You can trust them. They tell us what really happens. You can trust the Bible as accurate historically. And once you see that the New Testament is reliable, look and see what Yeshua says about the Old Testament, about the Hebrew Scriptures, and you'll see that it's reliable as well. So number one, you can trust the Bible. Put us in the overhead, please, historically. Uh, number two, let's talk about this. What, I, what do I mean? You can trust it culturally. What do I mean by this? Today, secular people seem far more troubled, actually, by the cultural aspects of the Bible than they are by the historical issues. Uh, what I mean by this is that the people who read, um, is that people read things in the Bible today, they consider that to be offensive to them. They consider these, a lot of things in the Bible to be primitive, to be regressive. They say, look, the Bible teaches this, and that's awful. Uh, we've progressed beyond that. Let's leave that behind. Many people say, you know, there are parts of the Bible that are, that are good. Uh, there are parts that are primitive and retrograde and regressive. And that's, we can't accept that today. So how do we respond to this very valid concern? Uh, now, I can't respond to every possible objection in, in one sermon, one drosh, especially because the list changes and shifts around all the time, which is actually one of my points. So instead, I want to give you three ways to handle any text of the Bible that at first blush seems offensive to you or you stumble over or prevents you from really honestly exploring Messianic Yeshua faith. Three things you can do to deal with the seemingly offensive biblical texts. So first, please consider the possibility that it doesn't really teach what you think it teaches. For example, in our text today, in Luke 24, the disciples are traveling on the road to Emmaus, and they're upset because they think the Bible is teaching something about the coming of the Messiah that it does not teach. Uh, they're all upset. They expected, like the rest of the Jews of their day, that the Messiah would come as this conquering king, as his military leader, victor and general, and would kick out all the Romans. But Yeshua says to them, that's not what the Bible actually teaches. He must first come as a suffering servant to deal with our sin. And only when the Messiah returns will he establish his millennial kingdom and there'll be peace on earth. So we need to consider the same things that they had trouble with. The Bible may not be teaching what we think it's teaching. Uh, and so we need to be patient with these texts. Here's an example. Look at the book of Genesis, very beginning, right? Here's all these famous patriarchs, all our heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. These are our Shabbat school heroes, right? But look at how they treat women. 
Pretty bad at times. They engage in polygamy. They got multiple wives, uh, like concubines, uh, which puts the man in the power seat. Uh, they sometimes buy and sell their wives. They pay, they pay the woman's father a bride price to acquire them. Uh, and these are supposed to be our exemplars, uh, our heroes. How do we handle that? I'm going to recommend you a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative by a, a Jewish professor who teaches at Berkeley named Robert Alter. He's an expert in ancient Jewish literature. And in this book, he points out there are two institutions in the book of Genesis that were universal in the ancient world, in ancient cultures, uh, polygamy and primogeniture. Right, Polygamy, the husband has multiple wives. And primogeniture, the oldest son gets everything. He gets all the power, all the money, all the land, and then he rules over the rest of his family. Very patriarchal, right? Uh, polygamy and primogeniture. But as Robert Alter points out, when you actually read the text of Genesis, you'll see that in every generation, polygamy wreaks havoc on the family. In every generation, having multiple wives and concubines proves to be an absolute disaster and messes up the family big time. It's an absolute disaster spiritually, culturally, economically, psychologically, relationally, socially, familiarly, in every way. And secondly, when it comes to primogeniture, in every generation, interestingly, God favors the younger over the older. It's always Abel and not Cain. It's always Isaac and not Ishmael. It's always Jacob and not Esau. Robert Alter says, if you actually realize what the book of Genesis is doing, it's subverting, not supporting primogeniture. It's overturning the ancient patriarchal institution in every place. And if you don't understand that, you have not learned how to properly read the text. And we see this in spades, by the way, in the New Testament. The New Testament says this. Look at Galatians 3.28. Paul writes, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Messiah Yeshua. The New Testament is saying that in Messiah Yeshua, women are of equal value and worth and dignity as men. And this was revolutionary. No other religion had ever said this. And then look two verses earlier, Genesis, uh, Galatians 3.26. Paul says, so in, in Messiah Yeshua, you're all sons of God through faith. You know how subversive a statement that is? He's saying that in the Messiah Yeshua, women have equal rights of inheritance as men. They're considered as sons, just like men. Equal inheritance. They will co-rule with the Messiah together in his kingdom. But if you don't realize this, and you misread the texts, you're going to assume the Bible's anti-women and you're going to dismiss it. But that would be tragic because it doesn't say what you think it says. So what if you dismiss the Bible and you miss out on a personal relationship with Yeshua because of your misunderstanding of what it says? So be careful about the assumptions you make about the Bible based on your cultural lenses. Because modern secular people have a kind of a built-in prejudice against the Bible, they often assume it's teaching something that it's not teaching. So please consider the possibility that the text is not teaching what you think it is. That's number one. Number two, please consider the possibility that you're misunderstanding what the Bible's teaching. Why? 
because of your own cultural blinders. Your own cultural blinders. Look at the disciples again on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. They misunderstood the Hebrew scriptures. They misunderstood the Messianic prophecies because as Jews, they were really only thinking about the redemption of Israel. In fact, they actually say this. Look at Luke 24, 21. They say, we had hoped that Yeshua of Nazareth was the one who was going to redeem Israel. They weren't thinking about the redemption of the whole world and how Yeshua would be not only the Messiah of Israel, but also the Redeemer of the Gentiles too. So they had this cultural blinders on that caused them to misread the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures about the coming of the Messiah, about who he'd be and what he'd do, and the two-stage nature of his Messianic program. That's why they could not understand the crucifixion, and they missed all his prior explanations about it, about how he would be raised from the dead on the third day. In the same way, I want you to consider how easy it is for you and for me for us to misunderstand the Bible and to miss Messiah due to our own cultural blinders. Let me give you just one case study. One case study. Let's look at the issue of slavery in the Bible, okay? Uh, I can't tell you how often I hear people say, well, the Bible condones slavery. That's wrong. So who knows what else is wrong in the Bible? Let me ask you a question. Does the Bible actually condone slavery? Will you say, yes, it does. Look at this passage where Paul says, slaves, obey your masters. There it is. We actually go to the one book in the Bible, in the New Testament, where Paul actually addresses a master-slave relationship, the book of Philemon. The, uh, Philemon. Paul addresses uh, both Onesimus, the, the slave, and, and Philemon, the, the master. And you see how the, how the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon actually works you'll realize this is not slavery like you and I are used to. It's more like indentured servitude, an indentured servant. The problem is, when you and I see the word slavery in the Bible, or the word slave, we immediately think of 18th and 19th century black, racial-based slavery in the American South. Uh, African slavery. And that's immediately what we think, right? But when, you actually, but when you do that, when you read the Bible, what the Bible says through your own cultural presuppositions and blinders, you're not understanding what the Bible's teaching. Murray Harris, the famous historian, wrote a critically acclaimed book uh, on what slavery was like in the ancient uh, first century Greco-Roman world. Uh, he would put this in the overhead. He says, there were, he says, these are the types of slaves that Paul is addressing in the New Testament. He writes this. In Greco-Roman times, number one, slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and they lived like everybody else and were never segregated from the rest of society in any way. Number two, slaves were more educated than their owners in many cases. Many slaves held high managerial positions. Number three, from a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not themselves personally poor and often accrued enough wealth to purchase their freedom. And number four, very few persons were slaves for life in the first century, most expected to be manumitted, to be freed, emancipated after about 10 years, or by the late 30s at the latest. Now in contrast, New World 17th, 18th, 19th century slavery was race-based. Uh, its default mode was slavery for life. 
Uh, the African slave trade was, was begun in resource through kidnapping, which the Bible unconditionally condemns. Therefore, while early Messianic believers like Paul, they discouraged slavery, they, uh, they didn't go on a campaign to end it. Whereas in contrast, in the 18th and 19th century, it was the Christians, when faced with New World slavery, who did work for its complete abolition. And indeed, they were the founders and the leaders of the abolitionist movement in America. Because they saw that American slavery could not be squared in any way with biblical teaching. So the point is this. When you hear someone say, the Bible condones slavery, you can confidently reply, no, it does not. Not in the way you are envisioning slavery. The Bible nowhere condones that. That's not what the Bible is talking about. A better translation would be an indentured servant. Okay, but you might object. Well, that may not be what the Bible is teaching. I'll grant you that, David. Uh, but didn't, isn't it true that white slave owners in the South nonetheless used these passages to justify American slavery? And the answer is yes, they did. But it was wrong. It was totally wrong. Because sadly, people misuse and misinterpret the Bible all the time to try to justify their sins. That's human nature. People in the South were also reading the Bible through their own cultural blinders. But it was an absolutely illegitimate twisting and perversion of the Word of God. So therefore, please consider the possibility that when you read something in the Scriptures that seems offensive to you, that you're also reading it through your cultural blinders. So number one, you may be taking with us the overhead, please. We may be, you may be taking it uh, the wrong way because the scriptures, uh, like the scriptures that you, you describe in polygamy, they're not condoning polygamy. Number two, you might be misunderstanding what it says because of your own cultural blinders. And number three, you might be getting offended by certain biblical texts because of your unexamined assumption of the self-proclaimed superiority of your own cultural moment. So if you're a typical urban, secular, 21st century uh, Western American, you may read a certain passage in Scripture that may uphold, for example, traditional morality. And you may say, oh, that's so regressive and offensive. But that's only because in our secular modern culture, that's a problem, that particular biblical passage. But in other cultures... In other parts of the world, that passage is fine. And some other passage that you may think is fine, they're having trouble with. Let me give you an example. So, for example, in our individualistic Western societies, what the Bible says about sex is a problem. But what you read about the Bible, and especially what you read in the New Testament about forgiveness, you know, forgive your enemy, let it go, forgive 70 times 7, turn the other cheek, when your enemy asks for your coat, give him your shirt as well. We say, how wonderful that the whole world only lived like that. You know, we're down on that sexual ethics thing, what the Bible says about sex. You know, that's regressive. But these teachings of Yeshua about forgiveness, they're wonderful. They're great. They're awesome. Okay, now go to the Middle East. Go to Egypt or Syria or Iraq or Iran or Turkey or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan. Let them read the Bible. What the Bible says about sex, that's pretty good. Not strict enough, but it's pretty good. 
what the Bible says about forgiveness, about forgiving your enemies? That's crazy. That's insane. That's stupid. They say you'll be destroyed if you, show, if you ever show mercy or weakness like that. You'll be disgracing your family. Because that's not an individualistic society in the Middle East. It's a traditional society. It's not a guilt culture. It's a shame culture. So let me ask you. If you're offended by something in the Bible, why should your cultural sensibilities trump everybody else's? Why should you dismiss the Bible because it defends your particular culture on some point or another? Don't you see what I mean? That we have these blind spots. You have these unexamined, unstated, hidden, unconscious assumption that your culture is superior to everybody else's. Let me ask you to do a thought experiment. If the Bible really was the word of God, and therefore was not the product of any one culture, but, but came from God, wouldn't it have to contradict every culture at some point? Because no culture is perfect. No culture is 100% superior. So if the Bible is the word of God, wouldn't it by definition have to contradict each culture at some point or another? And of course that contradiction would be different for, for each culture. So if the Bible is the word of God, wouldn't it have to offend your cultural sensibilities at some point? Therefore, when you read the Bible, and you find some part of it outrageous or offensive, it's actually proof it's probably true. It's probably from God. It's not a reason to say the Bible is not from God. It's a reason to say that it is. So what makes you think that just because this part or that part of the Bible offends you, that you can therefore write it off? On the contrary, the Bible rises above and critiques every culture. And you know, your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, they'll probably find a lot of what you think right now to be absolutely embarrassing. <laughs> Just like things that probably your great-grandparents believed that you find embarrassing. In the same way, future generations will probably mock some of your current beliefs. Now, unless you really think that you've arrived at the cultural moment where you have absolute monopoly on thought and politics and philosophy and worldview, uh, unless you think that, you're going to have you embarrassed by some of your views a generation or two from now. So if you let your 21st century Western secular range of beliefs sit in judgment on the Bible, you're going to miss out on a personal relationship with God through Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. You're going to miss out because the Bible offends one of your beliefs that 50 years from now might be a laughingstock. So number one, put that the overhead, please. You can trust the Bible historically. Number two, you can trust it culturally. But number three, you have to be able to trust it personally. And it's often said or implied that people who believe in the authority of the Bible are guilty of embracing a kind of cold, legalistic faith. But I want to make the case that an authoritative Bible is actually a prerequisite for a warm, personal relationship with God. So, for example, look at our text again, Luke 24, 32. When these Emmaus disciples, on the road to Emmaus, they look back on everything, uh, everything that Yeshua said to them, what do they say? How do they summarize it all? They summarize it like this, Luke 24, 32. Were not our hearts burning within us? Well, he opened the scriptures up to us. 
You know, in English, when we use the word heart, we mean our emotions. But in the Bible, the word heart refers to the whole person. You know, mind, emotion, will, volition. And this phrase, our heart's burning within us, this means an uncontrollable desire for someone. Here's what they're saying. They had a life-changing, personal, existential encounter with the Lord. Their hearts went out to Yeshua. They felt a love they had never experienced before. When? When the scriptures were properly expounded to them. When they, when they understood what the scriptures actually meant and how they all pointed to the Messiah, to Yeshua. That's the doorway into this deep personal relationship with God. Notice how Yeshua goes about this. Uh, this is what the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, uh, said to Yeshua. They said this, Luke twenty four twenty. They said, The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So what's the, picture, the context here? They're talking to Yeshua without, without realizing who it is. They're talking to Yeshua about Yeshua, saying, He died on the cross. But we thought he was the one who was going to save us. And then Yeshua turns to them and says what? Luke 24, 25. How foolish you are and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? He's saying to them, you've misunderstood the scriptures. The Messiah had to be crucified and rise again on the third day according to the scriptures. Okay, well, why did they misunderstand that? Here's the key. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Yeshua was saying what? He's saying, everything in the Bible is about me. And you will never understand it if you don't see this. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he shows it all about him. And how he's the Messiah of Israel. Now, if instead you think the Bible is all about you, about what you must do, how you must live to be right with God, then you don't need a Messiah who dies for you. All you need, all you need are rules and then to obey them. There are two ways to read the Bible. You can read it as if it's all about you and what you must do to inherit eternal life. Or you can read every part of the Bible as ultimately being all about him, about Yeshua, and what he has done for you. So is it all about you, or is it all about him? Let's do what Yeshua did on that day, very quickly, and beginning with Moses, with the Torah, that's all we have time for today. What's Moses all about? Look at the story of the Exodus, and Moses, at the Passover. What's it all about? Is it about you? about how you've got to be faithful just like Moses and face down Pharaoh? Is it all about you? Is that the moral of the story of the Exodus? No. God did not come to Moses and say, wow, you're such a great guy. You deserve to be the leader of Israel. No. On the contrary, God says to Israel, you all deserve to die because you're all guilty of your sins. But, but he says then, slay a lamb. Put the blood of the lamb on your doorposts. Go inside, into your homes, inside the door. Take shelter under the blood of the lamb. 
When the angel of death comes, he'll see the blood, it'll pass over your homes, and you won't have to pay for your own sins. You know, if you read the story of the Passover, as if it's all about you, what do you say? You say, okay, well, you better do it right. We have to do it each year just the right way, obey the Lord perfectly. But can you imagine what must have happened in the disciples' hearts when Yeshua says to them, now, do you really think the holy God of the universe forgave your sins because of these sweet little woolly lambs? I'm the lamb. I'm the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I'm the Lord himself come into this world to absorb in myself your debt so that you and I can be together in heaven for all eternity. When I hear Bible teachings on podcasts or YouTubes or Facebook or websites, and you know, sometimes they feel kind of like a lecture. But when the preacher starts to talk about Yeshua, then it becomes a real sermon. It moves from information for my head to speaking to my heart and then changing my life. Because when Yeshua says, I'm the Passover Exodus, uh, Moses and the Torah, that's ultimately all about me. I'm the Lamb. I lay down my life for you. And therefore, you need to come to me. Then what happens? Then it's personal. Then it becomes an encounter. And you want him. And you sense his presence. Maybe even now. When you see it's really all about him. Every part of the Bible. Look at the rock of Moses, right, smitten in the wilderness, uh, and with the rod of God and water gushes out in the desert. That's a picture of Yeshua. Yeshua is smitten with the rod of God's justice so that we can have living, living water in the desert of our life. Yeshua is the tabernacle and the temple, right? He's the sacrifice. He's the altar, the menorah, the showbread. Every part of the tabernacle and the temple are pictures, Torah pictures of him and what he did for you. He's the fulfillment of the three anointed offices in the scriptures, right? Uh, prophet, priest, king. It's all about him. It's not about you. It's not about me. And that's good news. Doesn't that make you want him? Does not your heart begin to burn within you? Is not there a kind of, of longing? You have in your heart a longing, a longing for purpose you have in your life? For infinite love, for significance, for security, that nothing in this world can possibly ever give you, can possibly ever satisfy. Your heart will not be satisfied until you find Yeshua, the lover of your soul. And one of the ways you find him is when you search the scriptures and see it's all about him on every page. But it's not just understanding the scriptures, both the Old and New Testament, all about him. It's also seeing the scriptures as the word of God. If you want a personal relationship, you must not only understand who the Bible is about, you also have to be willing to submit your life to it. You see, one of the ways I know that Elizabeth and I have a good relationship is because we sometimes fight and argue. <laughs> what do I mean by that? Well, this is what I mean. Have you ever seen the movie or read the book, The Stepford Wives? The men of Stepford, Connecticut, 
They got tired of their wives complaining and arguing and nagging. So what do they do? They put these little microchips that implanted them in their wives' brains. To make them 100% docile and compliant, they never contradict their husbands anymore. No more conflict, no more fighting. All it is now is, yes, dear, anything you say, dear. They got compliant wives. But in the process, they lost any real personal relationship. Because their wives are just robots now. They're no longer a real person. If you're in a real personal relationship, there will occasionally be conflict and contradiction and arguing. If there is none ever, then one of you has stuck a microchip in the other. Now, what if you say... I like a lot of things in the Bible, but I don't like this, I don't like that, and this part offends me, I don't like this, I don't believe in that, I'm I'm going to ignore this part over here for sure. Okay, let me ask you a question then. If that's your attitude, how does your God ever speak to you? How does he argue with you or contradict you? How is is he ever able to correct or exhort or admonish or convict you? How could your God ever tell you that you're wrong? How could he ever challenge you? Because if you just pick and choose what you like in the Bible, if you yourself decide uh, what to obey, what to ignore, then you don't have a real God. You've just got a God that you've made up that exists only inside your mind. You've got a Stepford God, a robot who's nothing more than a projection of you, created in your image. You see, unless you have an authoritative Bible whereby God can speak to you through its pages and contradict you, you've just got a step for God. You put a microchip in him. It's not a real God. It's just you, writ large. A fully authoritative Bible that you submit to as God's word is not the enemy of a personal relationship with the Lord. It's just the opposite. It's the precondition. You know, the person with the greatest relationship ever with God the Father was Yeshua. And he submitted to God's will fully. Again, in the Garden of Gethsemane, facing the crucifixion, the next day, what did he cry out? Matthew 26, 39. He cries out, My Father, put this in the overhead, please. My Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. In the same way, for you and me, submitting to God's word is not the enemy of a personal relationship with Yeshua the Messiah. Rather, it's the precondition. You know, Yeshua bled the scriptures. It filled him. He was always saying things like this. The scriptures cannot be broken. Yes, Peter, I could do this, but then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, he says. And when he rebukes Satan, what does he, how does he just rebuke him? With scripture. Is he dying on the cross? What is he doing? According to scripture, Psalm 22. When you cut Yeshua, he bled scripture. That's how we have this incredible, intimate relationship with the Father. Yes, he's God, but he's also fully human. And as such, he shows us a relationship uh, with the Word of God, uh, with the Hebrew scriptures and the New Covenant scriptures. He shows us the kind of relationship with God's Word that we must have. Do you want your hearts to burn within you? Do you want the deepest longings of your heart to find their rest 
in a personal existential encounter with a living God, then go to Yeshua the Messiah. He and he alone is the living word of God. The word of God made flesh who came and dwelt among us, who lived the life you should have lived but could not, who died the death you should have died, that by taking on your sins, go to him. Turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and turn to him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. And we're going to ask the music team to come on up. Uh, Father, we thank you today. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you most of all for your living word, the word of God made flesh, Yeshua the Messiah. We thank you that the Bible is not about us, about what we must do, about how we have to be perfect, which we never can be. We thank you, though, that the Bible is ultimately all about you, Yeshua. Every page, every prophecy, every symbol and image is a Torah picture of you. And how you, Yeshua, are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Or we repent and put our trust in you and commit our lives to follow you. So, Lord, speak to our innermost being today. Let our hearts burn within us for you. Fill us with a longing and an ache for you. Because you, Yeshua, you are our bridegroom, God. You're the lover of our souls. All our deepest searching and yearning for meaning uh, and significance and peace for, for, for shalom and for security and rest and love. Find their fulfillment in you. And so we'll never be satisfied. Until we find you, Lord. Or more to the point, until we let ourselves be found by you. Because you are relentlessly searching for us. And so we pray that you will open our hearts. You'll give us this existential, life-changing encounter with you, Yeshua. A personal relationship with the living God of the universe through you. For you, Yeshua, are the way and the truth and the life. You live the life we should have lived. You died the death we should have died. So now we turn from our sin and we turn from ourself and we turn to you. And we pray this all in your name, Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.